I rang the bell. The front door opened, and there was Courtney Cox. This was pre-Friends Courtney, but post-Springsteen video Courtney. She smiled and invited us in. But goddammit, I'm already getting ahead of myself. Let me back up. Hi, you don't know me, but I'm Jim Walker, and this is Record. This story is about a small thing, just a little bit of good luck that happened to me a long time ago. But it accidentally led me to the rest of my life. It's funny how many plans you can make, and how you can try to map out your future and say to yourself, yep, this is how it's all going to be because I wrote the plan down on a piece of paper. Of course, plans are a good thing to have, but the one constant of life is that it has a habit of coming at you sideways, knocking you off balance, totally derailing everything, and sending you down paths you didn't even know existed. It's what's so wonderfully weird and sometimes frightening about being here. We really don't know what's going to happen next. In 1986, I was 21 years old, living in La Cañada, California, which is a fussy little town right next to Pasadena. I was living in a room by our pool behind my parents' garage that had previously been used for guests to change into their bathing suits. Everyone in my family just called the room the pool room. Not only did I live in the pool room, but I was in a band called Lost Anthony, and we rehearsed there too. It was a bit of a tight squeeze, what with Scott's drums, my clothes, the band's PA system, my books, Eric's keyboards, Renee's bass amp, my guitar amps, all my shoes, the microphone stands, and my album collection. But we made the best of it. I worked part-time at a record store, selling actual back-in-the-day vinyl records, ordering new and older releases, and doing the inventory. To supplement my income, I gave guitar lessons, also in the pool room. One of my guitar students was a guy named Phil Joano. I'd met him a few years previous when he asked me to be in a short film he was making. I kind of acted once in a while, so I said yes. The film was called The Last Chance Dance, and in it I played Bud, the best friend of the main character. The film was really fun to be involved in, and I met people on the set that I'm still friends with 30 years later. Weirdly, a bunch of the people involved in the film went on to have very respectable, hey, I know who that guy is careers as cinematographers, writers, actors, and film directors. It's so cool to me that a little student film produced so much talent. And everyone was nice and likable, too, so I never had to begrudge anyone's success later on. When the film was finished, it was shown with several others at the American Film Institute. But I don't think anyone who was there remembers any of the other films, because The Last Chance Dance was so good. It was funny, romantic, quirky, and you felt like you knew all the characters. When the lights went up, Director Phil was suddenly surrounded by agents, movie company reps, producers, managers, and they all wanted to be in the Phil business. He hadn't even left the aisle where he was sitting. He was just standing there at his seat like a wagon train surrounded by Indians. I could still see him standing there with a bewildered look on his face, in the center of all these men and women in expensive suits, all vying for his complete attention and thrusting their business cards into his hand. I went to say goodbye to him in the midst of all this activity. I tapped him on the shoulder and said, Hey, talk to you later, Phil. He looked at me without a flicker of recognition on his face and said, Okay, thank you very much, sir. The next day, Phil's phone rang off the hook with people wanting meetings. One of the people who wanted to talk with Phil was Steven Spielberg. Oh, shit got real. Phil took a meeting with Mr. Spielberg, and suddenly he was in the picture biz. When time permitted, Phil still took guitar lessons from me, and I got to hear about all the groovy things that were going on in his life. I was just very happy for him. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Lost Anthony. 
Meanwhile, my band Lost Anthony was slugging it out, doing the chump thing as just another band from LA. We were good, but who cared? Throw a rock anywhere in that town, you'd hit a bunch of slobs just like us. Still, on we went. We only played a couple of shows a month, but we rehearsed constantly. For some reason, we all loved practicing. I had a ton of original songs I'd written, so we just kept learning tune after tune. We'd find the good ones and weed out the crappy ones. After all that rehearsal, we were as tight a unit as you'd find in any garage anywhere in Southern California. We wanted to be ready, just in case anything happened for us. Because bottom line, that's what we wanted. Something to happen for us. I've been writing songs since I was 12 years old. My first songs back then had big Kiss and Sabbath-type riffs and were about Satan. Then as I got a little older and girls became of interest, I started writing love songs. All during high school, I wrote nothing but love songs. I'm not kidding. I wrote about 200 of them, every one steaming horse shit. I really wanted a girlfriend back then, and a lot of my songs were about no one to love, lonely young man in his room, and why won't anybody love me in my room, and where was the girl of my dreams, and why won't you come to my room and knock? I never quite put it together that I probably didn't have a girlfriend because I sat in the pool room writing whiny songs about idealized love instead of actually leaving the room and trying to meet any human girls. So I spent high school alone writing bad songs and bumming out. Let me rephrase that a little. The songs weren't completely without merit. Even when I was a kid, I had a pretty good sense of how to write a decent and sometimes even catchy melody. It was the lyrics that hung me up. Good God, my lyrics were so bad. Trite, corny lines that had already been said a million times before, a million times better. I wrote words and poems all the time, but I just couldn't seem to find my own unique voice. I suspected that I had absolutely nothing to say. And that's a frightening thought. Then, just out of high school, I heard Elvis Costello. I mean, I'd heard Elvis for years, but never really paid attention. It was his album Imperial Bedroom that did it. I'm not really sure why that record connected with me the way it did, but it was life-changing. It was a complete revelation for me in my songwriting. The songs on Imperial Bedroom were love songs, but they were pissed-off love songs. And not pissed off in the way punk rock was pissed off, in a hail of distortion spit and beer. I loved a lot of that stuff, but Elvis's songs were melodic, heartbreaking, nerdish, bittersweet, rude, angry, but above all, literate. The guy was incredibly sharp and really smart. Well, that was it for me. For a couple of years, my songs were very thinly veiled attempts to sound like Elvis. My output was very, shall we say, Elvis-like. The songs had Elvisisms and sounded quite Elvisish, but I was getting better. I could feel it. I was doing work as a film extra one summer when I was 20 or so. I was in a crowd scene in some football stands. Boring work. 75 bucks a day. Hours would go by where me and my fellow faces in the crowd would have nothing to do while the film crew got their end together. So to pass time, I'd putter with lyrics. Scribbling around one day there, under the heat of the California sun, I wrote a set of lyrics called, How Can I Love? After I wrote it, I sat back a little freaked out. It wasn't the greatest song ever written by a long shot, but it was absolutely the best thing I'd ever written. It wasn't copying anyone's style either. It was truly me. I was freaked out because... I'd stumbled upon my written voice. From then on, I wrote and wrote and wrote, song after song. A lot of them sucked, but enough of them didn't. The ratio was usually, I'd write ten songs in a month and get two good ones. Out of the remaining eight, there were usually a couple songs in there that with some work might end up being all right. 
and there were six left over that I could strip for parts and use for other songs. For the next couple years, all I did was write songs, play with Lost Anthony, and work some shitty job. Meanwhile, things had started to get mighty interesting for my guitar student, Phil. Spielberg wanted him to direct a movie. Holy shit! There was a write-up on Phil in the calendar section of the LA Times Sunday edition. The movie he was slated to direct was called Three O'Clock High. It's centered around a kid working on the high school newspaper who accidentally enrages the school bully, who's a violent beast. The bully tells the kid that they're going to fight after school at 3 o'clock, and there's nothing the kid can do about it. The rest of the movie is about what the kid does to try to turn it all around and not have to fight the guy. Phil told me all about the script at one of our guitar lessons, then whoosh, he was gone for several months filming. About this time, my mom, who'd become very well aware of how much a maniac I'd become about writing songs, was kind enough to co-sign alone with me. I wanted to get some kind of simple recording rig together so I could experiment around with song ideas. I ended up with my first piece of recording gear, a Fostex cassette 4-track machine. I also purchased a Roland drum machine so I'd have some kind of rhythm to play to. I am not a technical person. At all. I didn't want to be a recording engineer or anything, I just wanted to goof off and put down some ideas. It takes a long time for me to understand technical things. I have to read things over and over and push the information into my caveman brain. But I really wanted to learn how to use this new gear correctly. So before I so much as plugged anything in, I read both manuals cover to cover. It took me days. God, it was dull, but I did it. I finished reading, put the manuals aside, and realized I'd retained nothing. Not one thing. So I just plugged shit in and dicked around with it till I was making sounds and recording stuff. And you can put that last sentence on my gravestone, because that is truly the story of my life. Suddenly recording became my entire universe. It was a total shot in the arm. I literally could not wait to get up in the morning and start working on music. The pool room was now my sleeping quarters, recording studio, guitar lesson space, band rehearsal room, and all-around laboratory. One day, Phil called me from Utah, where he was filming 3 O'Clock High. He said he had an idea. He was going to send me the opening scene from the movie on a VHS tape. I should watch it and try to write a song for the scene. He told me there were no guarantees, and that was a total long shot, and he really had very little say in things like the film music because he was a first-time director. But he thought it was worth a shot. I said, sure, I'd give it a go. He told me he'd have his secretary, Carol, FedEx it to me. To show you how green I was... I had to ask him what FedEx was. Well, I didn't know. No one ever sent me anything Fed fucking X, and I never sent anyone anything either using Fed fucking X, okay? And he had a secretary too, huh? Well, lottie fucking da. I got the videotape the next day. The scene was a montage of the main character, Jerry Mitchell, getting up late for school, running around the house trying to get ready, then barreling his car through traffic to pick up his girlfriend, all while trying to get to school on time. I watched the scene over and over, but nothing was really coming as far as a song idea. Then I remembered some old film noir from the 40s I'd seen, where this thug made a fist and said to the detective, Take a walk, Flatfoot, or I'll give you something to remember me by. That seemed like a pretty good title. Something to remember me by. I wrote the tune that afternoon, but now recording it was another matter. I had a very basic recording setup out there in the pool room, and I didn't have a TV or a VCR out there, but there was one inside my parents' house. So, I couldn't record the song while I was looking at the movie. My solution was to get a stopwatch. I sat in my parents' house on the floor in front of the TV, played the scene on the VCR, and started the stopwatch exactly where I wanted the music to begin. 
Then, as the scene played on, I jotted down, with pad and pencil, the exact times where I wanted things to lock up musically in line with the action in the scene. It was all primitive as hell, but I did the best I could with what I had. I went back out to the pool room and recorded the song on my Fostex. First, I chose a tempo for the drum machine. Then I programmed the drum machine so I had something to play along with. That was track one. Then I overdubbed a clean electric guitar. Track two. Then bass. Track three. I wanted to add more instruments to the song, but like I said, this was a four-track machine. So this is where, back in the day, you actually had to make and commit to a decision. I got the three tracks balanced and sounding good, then I did a mix-down of the three tracks I'd recorded onto the remaining open track, track four. I didn't bother on these crude demos for stereo drums or any such fanciness. I just mixed the three tracks down to track four. Now track four contained all the instruments and sounded how I wanted it to so I could now record over original tracks 1, 2, and 3 with other instruments. I replaced the drums that were on track 1 with a crunchy, distorted electric guitar that came in on the choruses and also played the solo. That's new track 1. I replaced the clean electric guitar on track 2 with the lead vocal. New track 2. Then I put a harmony background vocal on track 3, replacing the bass that had been there previously. New track 3. And I was done. When Phil returned from Utah for a weekend, I had him over to hear it and see it with picture. And here's where it used to get real stupid working in the old days. I brought my cassette player with the song queued up into the folks' house. Phil and I sat on the floor in front of the TV. He started the VCR, while at the same time, I started the cassette player. But because nothing was truly locked into time or anything, the music wouldn't start exactly where I wanted it to. It was only by sheer dumb luck after a few false starts by Phil and I that the cassette player and VCR both started at the right time. Phil saw the scene play out with the song. He loved it. Phil went back to Utah, I had zero expectations. A month went by. My phone rang and it was Phil. His voice was a little grave. He told me he'd played the song for some of the film executives. While everyone thought it was good, they had very high hopes for the picture and they wanted names attached to it. Dang. Phil said he was sorry to have wasted my time. I told him it was completely fine and I'd learned a lot about the whole process by doing it. Phil told me they now had Tom Petty, Big Country and the Thompson Twins all on board to write songs for the film. So that was cool and all, but he'd really hope to have my song in. No problem, I said. Two weeks later, I got another call from Phil. Tom Petty and the other two bands had submitted their songs, but no one involved with the movie was terribly impressed with the tunes. Spielberg listened to the songs and then asked Phil what he thought of them. Phil said he thought they were good songs, but they really didn't capture the spirit of the movie. Spielberg agreed. Then Phil told him about my song and played it for him. Good old King Stephen loved it. Whoa. A few days later, I was driving onto the Universal Studios lot. Drive on pass, very prestigious. Then parking and walking through the doors of Amblin. Steven Spielberg's compound of offices there on the lot. 
Phil had an office there, and I was meeting with him to talk about the film. I checked in at reception, was offered bottled water, and told to have a seat. I can't tell you how completely out of place I felt. I mean, what the hell was I doing there? Who was I? Nobody. And this was the office of the biggest film director in history. I wanted to flee. I tried to talk myself down, breathing slowly. Opposite the couch I was sitting on, there was a staircase. Suddenly bounding down the stairs came Steven Spielberg. Wow, there he was. He's actually real. No fucking way. As he got to the bottom step, he looked up, made eye contact with me, and a huge grin came across his face. He started directly toward me and put his hand out. Totally confused, I started to get off the couch and raised my hand to shake his. As he got closer, a look came across his face and his smile faded. He dropped his hand and said, Sorry, wrong guy. He took a hard left and disappeared down the hall like a puff of movie magic. I dropped my hand. A few minutes later, in Phil's office, he told me they wanted the song in the movie. Then he told me they wanted to pay me 10000 bucks to put the song in the movie. I was flabbergasted. I'd never seen more than $100 in my entire life. Tangerine Dream was going to be doing the additional score for the film. Holy shit, the risky business, guys. They'd also chosen a producer to record the song. David Tickle. Wow, that guy had worked with The Knack, Blondie, Split Ends, Prince. As if on cue, David Tickle walked into Phil's office. He's a very nice English gentleman. He looked like Dave Stewart from Eurythmics. He sat down, told me he loved the song, and told me his ideas for it. Basically, his ideas were to keep it just as it was. Arrangement, instruments, melody, lyrics, he liked it all. He just wanted to take it to a real recording studio and record it stronger and better. He asked me who I had in mind as far as a band to record it. Now, I had already thought about this. I wanted my band, Lost Anthony, to record it with me. I'd already spoken with them about this, and the boys were completely on board and very excited. We were rehearsed immaculately, and we could knock this tune out in a jiffy. So I told David I wanted to use my band. He said that was definitely an option, but that he'd already spoken to Rick Murata, Mike Landau, and Andy Summers from The Police, and they had all agreed to do it, if I wanted them on it. Rick Murata was a legendary studio drummer. He played with everyone from John Lennon, Linda Ronstadt, James Taylor, Steely Dan, Stevie Nicks. The list was a mile long. Mike Landau was one of the most in-demand guitarists in the world at the time. I'd just seen him playing with Joni Mitchell a few months before. And I liked the way David mentioned Andy Summers of the Police as almost an afterthought. Who? Andy Summers? You mean the guitar player of one of the biggest bands in history? I heard these names rattled off as the guys who wanted to do my session. And I swore to God, any allegiance, loyalty, or love I had for the guys in my band went flying out the window in one second. Whoosh. I told David I would definitely like to work with Rick, Mike, and Andy. That night at band practice, I told the guys how much I'd fought for them at the meeting. But they were making me use these other guys. The boys in the band all nodded their head and said they were disappointed, but they totally understood. And in just one afternoon in the biz, I had become a complete scumfuck. It didn't take that long for life to get weird. Phil started dating actress Helen Slater, who played Supergirl and was also in one of my all-time favorite comedies, Ruthless People. Phil brought Helen to some Lost Anthony shows. This impressed our fans quite a bit. Movie stars in the house. Wow. I took power lunches at the latest trendy restaurants, just me and a bunch of film people hobnobbing. Oh no, you look fabulous, darling. 
David Tickle invited me out to his house one Sunday afternoon. And what a house it was. A massive, gorgeous place in the Malibu Hills. It was a beautiful summer day, the hills glowing gold in the sun, warm breeze coming up the canyon, wind chimes, and the sound of distant crows in the air. I figured there'd be a bunch of people at David Shindig, but when I arrived there were just a few people attending. It was there for the first time I met the formidable Rick Murata. Rick was a Brooklyn-born Sicilian with dark, intense eyes, a large, powerful build, a full black beard and long black hair. At the time I met him, he was newly sober, angry, impatient, funny as hell, and was a terrific teller of stories. David's girlfriend was an actress from Chile named Valentina Vargas, one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life. Also super cool and very smart. Just a wonderful person. The other person at the party was Rosanna Arquette. First of all, I'd had a crush on her since I saw the Scorsese film After Hours, and I think she's a really great actress anyway, so I was totally starstruck, intimidated, and had trouble looking her in the eye. At one point, we were alone in the kitchen together. I can make small talk with anyone. I have a little man in my head who can shoot me topics and one-liners at all times. But there in the kitchen, I couldn't think of anything to say to her. I just stood there, pouring myself another margarita, kind of smiled, walked out, and cursed the little man. A few weeks later, it was time to record Something to Remember Me By. We were recording it at Ocean Way Recording in Hollywood, right there on Sunset Boulevard. One of the nicest studios on earth. So many incredible albums have been made in that studio. I couldn't believe I was there. Right down the hall, the Beach Boys were in one of the studios doing something. The musicians arrived around 11 a.m. Rick on drums, Mike Landau on guitar, and a bass player named John, whose last name I just can't remember. Andy Summers would be coming in later to overdub his guitar parts. I'd brought my guitar, but was unceremoniously informed that they wouldn't be needing my services. That was for the best. Mike Landau was a very nice guy. We talked about the Joni Mitchell gig a bit, then it was time to get to work. We recorded in Oceanway's biggest tracking room. It could hold an entire orchestra. Rick, John, and Mike were set up in that main room. I was in an isolation booth in the corner where I could make eye contact with the band while I sang. Instead of the clean guitar sound I'd used on my demo, Mike had added some tube overdrive that really gave the part more balls. We ran through the tune a couple times so the engineer could get levels on everyone, and then went for a take. It was amazing singing with those guys live. The kind of players that make a singer feel like they're just being lifted up and carried from underneath. It couldn't have been more than three or four takes before everyone back in the control room seemed satisfied. I took note that David Tickle didn't really seem to be doing much. He was sitting in the control room, reading a magazine, smoking pot. Most of the communication to the band had been from the sound engineer. Interesting. John the bass player had hit a few bum notes, which he fixed from the control room. Then I went out and fixed a couple of my vocal clams and added a few harmonies and some three-part background oohs and ahs. The sound engineer did a rough mix of the tune, and it seemed that everybody was good with it. I was over the moon. Then Phil showed up. Basically, we were all done. Phil just had to hear it and approve it. Phil sat in the good chair, right in the sweet spot between the speakers. The engineer hit playback and the tune started. Phil stared at the ground the entire time, not moving. When it was over, David asked him what he thought. Phil, never a guy at a loss for words, stumbled a bit and said it was okay. Then he said he needed to talk to me. We went out in the hallway. He was absolutely livid, red-faced, totally pissed off. He asked what that crap was. I had no idea what he was talking about. 
He said, that heavy metal shit, it's horrible. He said there was no way that was going in the movie. I asked him if he was talking about the guitar. He said, no, the whole thing sucked and it all had to be done again. I told him I thought it might just be the guitar sound, that heavier distorted sound that might be bothering him. He insisted that it was everything. It had to be done over. I asked him to hang on and trust me a little bit, and we went back in the control room. I then had the unenviable task of asking Mike to do an overdub, an alternate guitar take using a clean, non-distorted sound. He said there was no problem and went out to the tracking room. He changed up his sound to a clean one, then took another whack at it, playing through the track alone there in the cavernous room. The moment the tune started with the new sound, Phil's whole face lit up. Yeah, that's it, he said, practically jumping for joy. Song emergency diverted. Mike then put a second crunchier guitar underneath the clean one to add a little gruffness, then he put a guitar solo on the tune. At that point, it was decided that after what Mike had accomplished, we didn't really need Andy Summers to come in after all. Aww. I was disappointed because that would have been awesome, but I got it, and I really didn't question the decision. Years later, however, I wondered if old Andy was ever really on board at all, or if that was just a ploy to get me excited about using musicians other than my band. During mixdown, I was in the bathroom at the urinal, and David Tickle walked in. High as a kite, he stood next to me at the other urinal. It's going good, mate, he said. I told him I was having a blast, that I was overwhelmed. He told me I'd get used to it soon enough because he said I was going to be a big star. He went on to tell me that Universal was all in on this movie. They were doing a massive promotion on it because they wanted a giant fall season hit. Oh, look, David said, totally baked, staring at his extremely bright yellow stream of piss. Just look at all the vitamins. Then he laughed his ass off, staring at his own pee. That night I was invited to dinner with Phil, David and Valentina, and Rick. Phil picked me up in his brand new Porsche. Yep, things were getting weird. As I was walking out to the car, he asked me what the hell I thought I was wearing. I told him that I'd heard we were going to a nice place, so I had a nice shirt on and a tie. He told me to go change. He said the shittier you dress, the more important people think you are. So I put on a crummy t-shirt and jumped in the car. We went to the Saddle Peak Lodge a fancy schmancy place in Calabasas with animal heads all over the walls. It was all about meat in this place, but I, the sole vegetarian at the table, still managed to get a really great dinner. As we were leaving the restaurant, David invited us back to his house. Rick declined and went home, but Phil and I went. David Tickle also had a Porsche, and for whatever reason, David and Phil started racing each other up the canyon on the way home. Phil would speed past David in the opposing lane around a blind corner. Then David would do the same thing, if anyone had been coming around those corners, we would have all been dead, no question about it. But there was something in the night. Maybe it was the stupid, indestructible swagger of youth. Maybe it was just cocktail courage. I don't know. We ended up back at David's all in one piece, poured drinks, and went into the living room. The room was gorgeous, all massive windows and incredibly high ceilings. Then, in the middle of the room, was a pyramid. A, yeah, a pyramid. It's about six foot tall, made out of some kind of high-end PVC piping. I guess it was more like a pyramid skeleton. Valentina lit some Nag Champa incense, and David walked out of the room. A moment later, this incredible music started playing. A fretless bass playing a loping drone grind, shakers keeping time, and a distant soprano sax bathed in reverb playing a haunting melody. I didn't know it at the time, because the term was still relatively new, 
but I was listening to new age music. It sounds so gross to even say no, but at the time, it was ambient and spacey and pretty and just perfect for the moment. David came back in the room and said, Now, look at this. He pointed at the ceiling and turned off all the lights. On those high ceilings, suddenly a million stars appeared, turning, growing, moving, projected by some unseen machine David had installed. Whoa, Phil and I said in unison. Shall we go in the pyramid, David said. Oh man, we're all going in a pyramid? What are you supposed to do in a pyramid? Was this going to turn into an orgy? I didn't think I was quite mentally ready for an orgy, but here we were, and the four of us crawled into the pyramid. It wasn't near as big with the four of us in it, more like a pup tent, really. Dangling from the tip of the pyramid by string, down into its center, was a round crystal that twinkled and made patterns with the light reflected from the magic star machine. David and Valentina closed their eyes. David said, If we all close our eyes, hold hands, and concentrate... For some reason, I chose that moment to reach up to the crystal, take it between my fingers, and spin it hard. David continued, Sometimes you can make the crystal move. He opened his eyes, and the crystal was up above him, spinning madly, shooting out colors and sparkles like a tiny disco ball. Oh my God, David said to Phil and I. Did you do that? Like it was planned, Phil and I shook our heads. No. Valentina opened her eyes, and they became huge. David said, Oh my God, the energy coming from both of you is incredible. You both have incredible power. I can't believe this. Phil and I shrugged our shoulders. Wow, we said. Valentina began to rub my shoulders. She said, You're amazing. Phil said, Well, I think it's time to go. And that was the end of the orgy. Phil and I laughed our asses off all the way back to Pasadena making sport of stars and pyramids, and blasting Springsteen from the Porsche at a fucking diabolical level. The next day, and for the next several days, David Tickle called to discuss what had happened in the pyramid. I just didn't have the heart to tell him that I had spun the crystal myself, and that there was no power. So I just went along with it. David seemed like his whole world had turned on its axis. He couldn't stop talking about the event in the pyramid. He told me again that he knew I was going to be a big star. He gave me the number of his agent at CAA. He told me to call and get representation. Representation? Me? What did I have to represent? But I made the call. Good morning, CAA, a woman's voice said. Hi, my name is Jim Walker. I'm calling for Josh Turpin, I asked. And what is this regarding, she said. Representation, I said. Hold, please, she said. What the hell was I doing here, calling one of the biggest agencies in the world? I'm nobody. Just hang up. Jim, this is stupid. Hello, Jim, she said. Yes, I said. Are you Jim Walker, the songwriter? You wrote the title theme for Three O'Clock High, she asked. What the fuck? Uh, yeah, that's me, I said. Please hold for Josh, she said. I spoke with Josh. He was very excited to talk to me, and he was thrilled at the possibility of us working together. He laid it on thick as peanut butter, and I ate it up. The conversation ended with Josh telling me to call back when the movie opened in a few weeks, and we'd go from there. The song was finished, approved, and all systems were go. The last step in the process before the movie opened was post-production, that is, laying the finished song against picture, mixing it with the sound effects and the dialogue in the scene. I had also been told that the song was going to be used not only for the opening credits, but for the end credits as well, bookending the film. Hey, dig me. The post-production session was at a sound studio in the Universal lot. 
I was invited to come by and see how a session like that was done. I went. The studio was basically a small movie theater with a big soundboard toward the back. It was taking quite a while for the session to get going, so I decided to wander around a bit. I walked all over the universe a lot, peeking my head into giant sound stages, watching little bits of movies getting made. No one questioned my being there. It was great. I walked up to a building hoping to find a snack bar where I could get some water. The door opened up as I was approaching, and Tom Petty walked out. He held the door open for me. There you go, he said. Thank you, sir, I said. Not a problem, said Tom with that wicked smart aleck grin. Then I remembered. My song had been chosen over Tom's for the movie. A small and pathetic victory, but it was mine for that moment. I went back to the post-session. Phil had turned up and they were just starting to mix. It was a long afternoon, and at one point I walked out into a hallway. Coming toward me was a pretty young woman. She looked familiar, but I wasn't sure why. She broke out into a huge smile and walked straight up to me. She took my hand. Hello, Phil. It's so nice to finally meet you. I'm Courtney Cox, she said. And it's very nice to meet you too, Courtney, but I'm Jim. Phil's inside, I said. She actually dropped my hand like it was a dead fish and rolled her eyes. There was no little awkward laughing moment where a normal person might have said, Oops, my mistake, sorry. Then again, this wasn't a normal person. This was an actress. She didn't say a word. She just turned away from me and made her way down the hall to Phil. I received a check for $10,000 for my services from Universal Pictures a couple weeks later. I bought a van. A month and a half later, the movie came out. Lots of promotion. There were TV commercials, newspaper ads, billboards, a big premiere that I attended, and then, opening weekend, moviegoers stayed away in droves. I called Josh Turpin, the agent from CAA. I left a message. I left several messages. He never called back. The following weekend, box office was worse. No one wanted to see this picture for whatever reason. Eventually, it ran out of what little gas it had and disappeared from theaters. The film had completely bombed. A turkey. And that was that. At least I got a van. Then, a strange twist of fate. After working with him on the film, Rick Murata and I struck up a friendship and started working together. In 1988, he was producing songs for me and trying to help get me a record deal. I, in turn, was helping him out at his studio, doing music or vocals for projects that came through his place. These were usually TV commercials and indie films. I'd also help write songs and cut tracks for other artists he was producing. One day, Rick's wife, Chelsea, dropped by the studio. It was the week of Rick's birthday, and Chelsea wanted to go over a few things for his party. In tow with her was Chelsea's best friend, Courtney Cox. Courtney of the post-session Dead Fish Diss. Courtney of the eye roll and the career hyperfocus. She, of course, didn't remember me. Why would she? But here's the beauty part. A couple of days later, my phone rang. Hello, I said. Hi, Jim, this is Courtney. Courtney Cox, she said. Well, hello, Courtney, how are you? I said. Good, good. I'm calling to invite you to my house for Rick's birthday party this Thursday, she said. I'll be there, I said, getting a pencil for directions. A couple of days later, I rang the bell. When the front door opened, there was Courtney Cox. This was pre-Friends Courtney, but post-Springsteen video Courtney. She smiled and invited us in. It was then we found out how small this gathering was going to be. Just eight people. Rick, Chelsea, Courtney, her boyfriend. Then we were introduced to one couple we didn't know, 
a stunning woman who could have been out of a Victoria's Secret catalog, and her husband who was introduced as Peter. I said hi, and as I was shaking this guy's hand, it suddenly dawned on me that it's, holy shit, it's Peter fucking Frampton. Huh? My girlfriend and I started walking around admiring Courtney's house. She suddenly squeezed my hand and with a very confused look on her face, quietly said, Was that Peter Frampton? Yes, yes, I said under my breath. And oh my God, we started to laugh. Uncontrollably. One of those wonderful laughs where you can't laugh because it's not cool. But the more you can't laugh, the funnier the thing is and it builds up inside you and the more you can't laugh, the worse it is and you feel like a cork that's about to pop. So the two of us stepped out onto the balcony, shut the sliding glass door, and laughed harder than we'd laughed in years. It echoed all the way down Mulholland Drive. We went back and forth. Why the fuck? Why is he here? Who knows him? Why are we here? And then we were really gone. Later during dinner, we found out that Rick had played drums for Peter during the I'm In You tour. Isn't that a great name for a record? I'm In You. How do these guys think of that stuff? The meal was fantastic. Several courses served up from Courtney's kitchen by Courtney herself. Petty as it sounds, I had to smile to myself, remembering our first encounter. Wouldn't even give me the time of day, and now she's forced to cook my dinner. Ha ha ha. Get in there, foul wench, and rattle those pots and pans. Ha ha ha. And I'd love to dish on her some more, pardon the pun, but I'm sorry to say that she was very nice that time. Very sweet, funny, and very gracious to me, even though she had no idea who this bum was in her house eating her food. Back to Peter and Rick. You'd think that a couple of musicians who'd survived the 70s and had seen as much of the world as these guys had, they'd have some amazing stories. Road stories. Sex, drugs, rock and roll back in the day, shooting heroin straight into your eyeball, teenage girls running amok at the Chateau Marmont, amps at 11. Come on, you guys. Right now, I'm pulling up a chair. Start talking. Let's hear it. But you know what Peter and Rick talked about all night? Golf. Golf. That's it. A couple of months later, Courtney called Rick and told him that she was attached to a new sitcom. She was going to be the lead, and she was wondering if Rick and I could come up with a tune for the show, a theme song. Courtney came over to Rick's studio and described the show for us so we could get inspired to write the words. The show was called Friends. She played a girl who moves into a depressing, broken-down New York apartment building filled with pensioners, alcoholics, down-and-outs, losers. Her presence in the building is like a ray of sunshine. She becomes friends with all these ne'er-do-wells and brightens up their lives, encouraging them to be stronger, better people. A show about human relationships, positivity, and making a difference when people need it most. Courtney left. I went home and sat at the piano. I decided to try and write something reminiscent of the Cheers theme song. A little sad, but hopeful too. I made a demo, and Rick listened to it the next day. He added some great stuff to it, we tightened up the arrangement, changed some of the words, and we cut it at his studio. The song was called, No Such Word Is Lonely. On my own A leaf out on the wind But not alone Courtney heard it and loved it. She took it to the producers. They loved it. The song was perfect for the show. Then, just when it looked like it was full speed ahead for the song, we got a call from the producers. They wanted us to know a new executive came aboard and hated the idea for Friends as it was. He decided to totally revamp the idea so it would appeal to a much younger demographic, 
The new idea was that the cast be young, cute guys and girls living across the hall from each other, and all the wacky hijinks and sexual innuendo that ensue, and so forth. And if you stand by me, there'll be no such word as lonely anymore. The network guys went on to say that even though our song was pretty much dead, when they finally got this new reworked idea of the show more together, they'd be giving us a call to do a rewrite. We never heard from them again. And this is 28 Years Later, live at Studio 515 in Portland, Oregon. Where you can run for your life, make a break for the dawn. Crawl across the floor, you can stand against the wall, painted in a corner, crying for your mother. you're gonna do something to remember me by like a letter or a goodbye kiss I'm feeling like I never knew that sometimes it can come to this sometimes I forget that you're always gonna be there and I'm running from a shadow Something to remember 